You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Go Wild. Now, the Go Wild app has added some really cool and exciting functionality to their app. And the first one I want to talk about is the Near Me function. And basically what this does, it allows you to engage and connect with people in your area. You guys can talk about gear. You guys can talk about hunting areas. You guys can talk about what's going on in the woods. And it just allows the users to be more of a community and connect easier. The second part is the gearbox. And what the gearbox is, it is a an opportunity for the users to not only see reviews on products and see what the go wild community is using in the field what products they're using but it also allows you guys to purchase up to 150,000 products there's you, there's a shopping function on it so Check out the Go Wild app. If you haven't downloaded it to your phone yet, you need to, and you can do that at any app store that is currently available. Go Wild. It's an awesome app. Check them out. Here we find ourselves in mid-August, and the season is literally right around the corner. Just a couple of weeks before my first hunt, and I'm just, I'm excited, uh, ready for it to, to get started. I haven't made any changes to my bow for the last several weeks. Everything is just totally dialed in. I'm just continuing to get more and more comfortable with the setup that I have, and uh, you know, just making some, really at this point, pushing out as many videos as I can. I've got a list of, I think, like nine or 10 that I'm trying to kick out in the next couple of weeks. So definitely a lot of work on my plate. Um, hopefully you guys will be able to see some more videos, you know, almost probably every other day or somewhere close to that. But, uh, you know, what I want to talk about in this podcast today, especially since it's fresh on the mind, is early season strategy. And it's one of those things where it's going to depend a ton, you know, based on how you define early season, whether it's an October 1 opener versus a September 1 opener. That's a huge difference, even mid-September is you know a different thing altogether so i'm going to dive into some of those differences and you know specifically what i'm kind of looking for as we go out to north dakota which is more farmland but it's also got some river bottom it's got a little bit of hill country and i'm going to kind of break down at least what i would look for in early season depending on what the actual opener is talk about marsh too which is probably my favorite overall for early season and we're talking like you know mid-september or so and then just kind of some comments about big woods type area or area without ag. And then in addition, probably we'll also hit on some things like locating deer. Uh, you know, a lot of the, the people that we watch who are really successful year in and year out, a very common trait is that they all take step number one to try and locate a deer or multiple deer in certain areas that they're going to want to go after. So we'll talk about different options for that too. And especially options where you might not be able to use trail cameras, you might not be able to glass, things like that. So before we start off, I will just jump into the quick Onyx ad, and then we will get started. As most of you know, I've been using Onyx for several years for e-scouting and waypoint management. In the field or at home, I can browse aerials and topos, map my routes, draw lines and waypoints, color code points of interest, geotag photos of rubs, or even what a specific tree I intend on hunting looks like so that I can find it in the dark, say for example. Furthermore, I can download maps for offline use and of course browse public and private land boundaries. Use the code DIY for a discount on an Onyx Hunt membership. 
So as I initially mentioned, one of the huge, huge variables for early season hunting is exactly when that opener is. If we're talking velvet, you know, early September, some of these states are even opening in August. Uh, I think I saw somebody post from South Carolina. They already had a velvet season open. And I know obviously Kentucky has their velvet season. Um, Tennessee also has an early hunt as well as obviously North Dakota, Nebraska, South Dakota. I think in terms of non-residents, they, you can't hunt there as early as you used to be able to, but point being, there's a lot of opportunity for either in your home state or for like a traveling hunter to be able to get in on some of that early season uh, action before the bucks actually start shedding their velvet. And in that type of scenario, Really, when you think about it, it's the same overall game plan, but things are a little bit different. And that game plan is find some kind of a consistent pattern between bedding and feeding. And the only difference between that really early pre-velvet is that the patterns seem to be very well defined in some cases, and you're going to see a little bit more daylight movement uh, closer to areas where you're not going to be able to see that a little bit later in the season. You might still have deer coming out to alfalfa or soybeans or things like that really early, where as soon as they you know, rub that velvet off, they might start breaking up their bachelor groups and getting into areas that they're, you know, going to be a little bit uh, less, a little bit more likely to move during daylight with more security, but not necessarily go out into those areas anymore where you saw them in early September or even late August. Whereas, I mean, October 1st, you know, I can't speak to it too directly because states like Iowa, states like Michigan, I haven't hunted those states for archery yet. So it's a little bit different, but you know, by that point in time, yeah, you can monitor things, but you're going to see a lot of things shift and change around during that September month. And what you're seeing in some of those states with later openers in early September might be totally separate from when you're actually going to set up on October 1st. And it might be a shift in food sources from, you know, alfalfa or beans or, or whatever to acorns, right? That would be like a really, um, you know, kind of general, uh, more obvious type of shift. And you might not be seeing those deer out on the open fields as much as you did early. So the way that I kind of look at, I guess, my season upcoming and the states that I have planned, number one, it's North Dakota. Number two, it's Wisconsin. Number three, it is Minnesota. And that's because those openers this year in particular are basically one weekend offset from one another. North Dakota opens the weekend after that. Wisconsin opens the weekend after that. Minnesota opens. It's not always like that. Last year, for example, North Dakota opened up on, I believe, August 31st or August 30th, one of those two. And Wisconsin and Minnesota each opened on the same day, and it wasn't for a couple of weeks later. So this is kind of a unique scenario where we have openers back to back to back. So that first one in North Dakota, the strategy is, again, very simple. It's bed to feed. But the downside is we don't live close enough to be able to really keep a close tabs on a close tab on things as the season really gets down to the wire here. Now, Shane and I did go out earlier in the summer, just do a quick scouting trip. And during that scouting trip, we were able to see, okay, there's soybeans growing in this field. looks like canola here, corn here, and get that piece of the puzzle going. So that was a huge help, but we also, you know, don't have any trail cameras out there to be able to kind of monitor or send, you know, sell pictures back to be able to see what's out there in terms of you know, which areas are holding bigger deer, which are holding, you know, mostly smaller bucks or does, things like that. We're gonna have to try and figure out as we get there. And for me, you know, we didn't go boots on the ground in all of these spots. We did a lot of driving around and just kind of looking at things, but we also did some boots on the ground in areas 
specifically where you had to get away from the road to be able to see really what you needed to see. It was just too far tucked away from any roadway. And as a result of that, we basically have a catalog of spots that we're going to be able to spot check as soon as we get there. So like for me, there's a couple of areas in, you know, river bottom type terrain where it's mostly crops, but then you've got the, the wooded river bottom and little bends and oxbows and things like that. I've got a couple spots like that. There's a couple spots in where there's a little bit more kind of hilly stuff where again, it might be able to get onto one of those, you know, ridge tops and just kind of spot check, look for big tracks, look to see if the acorns have started to fall yet. And then there's some of those other spots, like the ones where we had success last year, where it's again, going back, spot checking and seeing if we got that fresh sign. And really that's something that we're going to be able to do like the day before the season, you know, get out there early and just walk quick and spot check, look for tracks and things like that really close to, or on the actual food itself. And then just see what's there, see how fresh the sign is, see the volume of sign, look at the size of the sign. And for the most part, it's going to be tracks. Uh, there's some places where, you know, theoretically we could try and glass, but not every place is like that. So again, it's going to be looking for the sign on the ground to really help make that determination. And then from that information, we'll be able to figure out, okay, these ones look good. These ones were not as good. And then based on the exact wind direction on each of those days, then we can kind of put together a game plan. We're going to have, you know, north wind, then two south winds in a row. So I'm going to hit this spot today. Tomorrow I'm going to hit the, you know, this other spot. And then the third day, it'll be depending on what I see on the second day. And the really key thing with that type of a strategy is that when I go in and do these, you know, very specific spot checks, it's going to be walking into areas, not necessarily as deep as I would actually do my hunting setup. It's going to be pulling it back just a little bit, right? I'm always trying to early season. If I have a bed location, I have a food location and I don't know an exact bed location, but it's a presumed bedding location. I want to always try and get as close to the bedding as I can without kind of, you know, blowing things up unless I know for sure that the deer are making it all the way to the food during daylight. And I don't have that, you know, exact luxury in this type of scenario. So I'm always trying to get as close to the, the bedding as possible for the actual hunt, but I don't need to get back that far to be able to verify what's in the area. It's just going to be get into the area, check the sign, make some decisions and then go from there. And I think kind of backing up a step from what exactly our plan is, if you look at it from the perspective of, let's say we lived out there, well, then it would be a little bit different scenario because then if I lived out there, I'd be putting trail cameras out on a lot of these food sources. I'd be doing glassing, uh, when, and if I could to try and identify what deer are in certain areas. And that's going to give me a lot better overall picture and a lot better overall idea than simply just checking for tracks. Uh, track size is something I'm still trying to implement more and more. It's something that I continue to learn and kind of identify you know, what range of track sizes, you know, is going to equate to a certain size deer. I know last year, for example, my deer body size wise was significantly larger than Shane's. But if I had to guess, my assumption would be that they were maybe similar age. So I don't think track size is the, the be all end all, but for sure, if you see a monster track, it's probably going to mean it's a, a much bigger deer overall. Um, and, and to be honest too, I'm not, especially since we don't have some of that you know, a visual, I'm not going to be super key on only shooting giant bucks. I'll be happy with, you know, a good representative deer, even if that means potentially missing out on something that might be bigger because I simply don't know that it exists out there. And of course, we're only going to be out there for a couple of days. So that makes a big difference as well. Now, fast forward a little bit to Wisconsin. Now the Wisconsin opener 
in this case and in many cases is mid-September. And I believe the exact date this year is September the 12th. Yep, I just looked it up on the calendar. September 12th is the opener for Wisconsin, then the 19th would be Minnesota. And with that 12th opener, my presumption is that most of the deer are going to have shed their velvet by that point in time. They probably will have started to break up for the most part. And again, I'm just going to be kind of looking towards hunting as close as I can in known bedding with the advantage of all that foliage up. I can get a little bit closer, but again, their bedding might not be exactly in the same locations that it's going to be when the leaves are off. So I got to keep that in mind too. I don't want to accidentally bump deer out because I assume they were bedding deeper into a certain place than they actually were. Uh, again, it's still going to be a little bit of, you know, trial and error and looking at the sign and things like that. But my assumption is that by that time on the 12th, there is going to be acorns that are dropping and they will have shifted most of their daylight activity from say field presence to more back in the woods feeding on those acorns. And what that means in Wisconsin, I have a lot of places that are more hilly in nature and they do have a ton of acorns, uh, lots of white oaks, you know, there's areas that have lots of red oaks too, but in that hilly, in that hilly terrain on that high ground, there's never really a big challenge in terms of finding white oaks. So what I might do if I have the time between Minnesota and Wisconsin, actually between North Dakota and Wisconsin is I might go out there just an afternoon before that actual opener and just do, you know, something somewhat similar to what, you know, John Eberhart would call like a speed tour and just kind of, you know, not going in super deep, not going in all the way to the bedding, but just kind of walking, uh, you know, a little bit further out transition line, just to try and see if I can figure out where the, the freshest stuff is before that actual hunt. Again, not getting in so deep that I'm going to be putting my scent down in the areas I would actually intend on hunting which are primarily based on my postseason scouting and knowing exactly where I would set up and knowing exactly where a lot of those beds would be. But the other thing to keep in mind too, is that the hilly type stuff, especially if you got a really spread out acorn crop, it can be really hard to pinpoint exact travel. Uh, the, you know, hottest trees could shift, you know, day to day, week to week. And there's obviously a lot of trees around. They're all dropping at kind of the same time. There's just food that's spread out all over the place. And if I run into that type of scenario, what I might do is just, you know, make it a numbers game and just kind of go for broke and set up on hot food source after hot food source and just, you know, scout with the, you know, my saddle system and sticks and everything on my back and just pick one each day that I have, that I have out in the field and just keep working through them until hopefully I, you know, get lucky. Or what I may do in that scenario is there's some other type of habitat in Wisconsin that is either big woods or it is marsh, but I'm not as familiar with it. But I also feel like the food sources there are going to be more isolated. You know, it could be an oak island um, or it could be a ridge that's, you know, nearby a big wood swamp or something like that that has some oak trees that I know I verified. But that would be kind of my maybe a little bit more pinpoint type of spots in terms of if the food sources are hot, there's probably better chance that the deer are going to be coming to them. But again, I don't know some of those particular areas quite as well, but I would say in general, my preference, uh, is going to be, if I can find that isolated food, I would much rather have that than if the food is more spread out. And so in that type of scenario, marshes and, you know, in particular cattail marshes that have those Oak islands or that have, um, hardwood areas that have little points and things like that, that stick out into areas of, you know, dogwood or cattails or, or what have you, where you got isolated bedding that you can look on a map and kind of figure out. And you have those really isolated oak trees. 
that's kind of like the, I mean, that's ideal. And, you know, even looking back a couple of years ago to what Dan and Joe were able to do in the public land challenge, you know, it's basically like that. I, that's essentially what I'm trying to also do when I hunt those marsh type of areas in the early season. And it's a simple strategy, but that doesn't mean it's easy. There's a lot of things that can screw it up, especially on public land. And especially since that style of hunting is definitely growing in popularity, you might get out into a, an area and it looks like it has fresh sign, but you might not realize that somebody else had hunted it the day before. And the deer might not be coming into that area during daylight anymore, or that, you know, whatever Oak tree you just set up on, maybe it was hot up until that point, but there's like a different one, one Island over that all of a sudden is now the hot tree. It's definitely not set in stone. Uh, there's still wind things and thermals that you have to, to play around with more. So I'd say during hill country hunting, uh, because again, a lot of those deer, if they're bedding just off those points and even down into some of those little ravines off of some of the points, depending on what the pressure is like and what the overall wind is like, you can get a lot of swirling in those areas. And once you get up on those oak flats above some of that bedding where those deer will come out and like to feed, I've been sitting up on some of those things before and the wind will go one direction for five straight minutes. And then it'll just do a 180, and, you know, suck back down the direction it was coming from. And then you get little swirls they're very hard to be able to set up on. And that's another reason why I think I'd you know, prefer early season to be able to hunt some of that isolated bedding and isolated food in the cattail marshes. The other thing that makes me excited for hunting that type of area is in Minnesota, at least less so Wisconsin, more so Minnesota. Uh, we did between my wife and I, we did a ton of boots on the ground scouting in a big marsh, uh, pretty close to me and really picked out a couple of high odds areas, I think. And the Minnesota opener being the 19th is later, but in that type of a place that I'm talking about hunting, it's still going to be the same strategy. It's still going to be hunting that isolated bedding that we found through our boots on the ground scouting in, you know, late March or, you know, or April or whenever we ended up doing that. Um, and then it's going to be knowing those isolated food sources and just spot checking them and going ahead and, and setting up and just making it a numbers game, just going from one to the next to the next and just keep, you know, isolating spots and, and knocking them off the list until we've gotten to a point where we've either gotten on the deer that we've wanted to, you know, to get on, uh, you know, we've filled our tag or we just keep hunting and keep working kind of one spot at a time until you get to the point where, you know, you're starting to get into that lull period and then eventually into later October, which is, you know, little bit different strategy, but kind of the point being, I don't want to overhunt any particular spot in that type of an area, uh, by potentially, um, you know, going back to it early season, unless maybe I'm just off. If I'm just off and I see deer movement and I want to be able to try and capitalize on that, I'd be totally fine with just going right back to that same area the next day and just moving my setup over, you know, 60 yards or whatever the case may be. Cause there's always that chance that whatever deer you saw didn't actually smell your setup. You know, there is the chance that it, it did and it could, you might not see anything that next day, but it's probably worth the gamble. I think in that type of scenario, other than that type of a, a case though, what I prefer to do is just hunt each one of those spots no more than once. And then once you get into that late October timeframe where some of that rut sign starts to pop up, you start to get those big scrapes that, that pop up and become more prevalent. Uh, a deer might start opening up a rub line or something like that. Then that's when I would go back and start to plan a second hunt at some of those key spots. I mean, it's one of those things too, where you go out in a certain area and you might cover 200 acres over a day and there might be, 
lots of deer sign overall, but there's maybe like one, two or three best spots. Uh, and they have the biggest buck sign, whether it was, you know, rut sign, or if it was something that, you know, you found a bed and you just looking at all the various things around, you think that it's a, a you know, better bucks bedding location and you can kind of eliminate all the rest of that stuff that looked okay. And that's going to be a big difference. I think in comparison to what we did last year, where we hunted the same marsh, but it was kind of going in blind every time and just kind of reading the sign and trying to set up on it the day of this time, we're able to eliminate a lot of, you know, just kind of that browsing around and, and looking at things by knowing exactly what were the best spots and just kind of building that library up as we go. So that's going to be, I think, if I'm going to shoot something early season, I would say either the really early velvet stuff in North Dakota or the island hopping stuff in Minnesota is going to be my highest, you know, odds, highest bet stuff. Whereas the Wisconsin, you know, it, I could make it happen in hill country, but realistically, I think my best odds in filling my Wisconsin tag are either going to be closer to the rut or during the uh, rifle season or during late season. I think just kind of probability wise, that's where my best chance lies versus especially if we have a big acorn crop this year, which I still need to walk and, and kind of observe and figure out if that's going to be the case or not. Uh, but experience has been early season in that type of, uh, that type of area, getting on bigger deer, very tough. Um, getting on any deer, meaning like, you know, having shot opportunities, potentially at like does or, or smaller bucks, very good odds just cause there's usually high deer numbers in those type of areas that I've been hunting. So for Sam, you know, it's going to be great cause she's, I think she'll get a lot of opportunities by hunting those types of areas because of the higher deer numbers, but, uh, it doesn't make it easy for trying to get on a, a big one. And a lot of those areas too, I know historically they, if they're smaller areas, sometimes you get lots of big, you know, deer on velvet pictures, but once the velvet comes off and they start to break up, a lot of those deer will move off and you got to kind of relocate them. A lot of them will move off on a private and then just kind of come back through during the rut. So those are all kind of things that are running through my mind. And one thing I didn't talk about, I guess a ton, but just in more detail in terms of the, the North Dakota stuff, I, I'd mentioned there's, you know, obviously some agriculture, there's a little bit of Hills, there's a little bit of river bottom, but the exact kind of specific setups in there, if it's ag type stuff, like what it was last year where we had, you know, an alfalfa field and then some amount of woods. And then we could tell on Onyx behind those woods was like a swamp. I could kind of know like, okay, the deer are bedding probably somewhere between the field and the swamp. Maybe they're bedding in the swamp, but maybe they are somewhere closer because it's just thick foliage everywhere. And they don't maybe need to bed all the way back in that swamp. And then we ended up hunting in, you know, what most articles or books or TV shows would refer to as kind of a staging area where we had a big scrape there before those deer would enter the field, they would hit that scrape kind of, you know, meander and mill about in that area and then get out to the field. And that was where we had success. At least I did. And Shane obviously shot his deer right on an alfalfa field during daylight, which is something that would be really rare in uh, Wisconsin or, or Minnesota and the places that I hunt. Uh, number one, finding an area like that, but number two, with all the hunting pressure, being able to get that daylight activity during the actual season, uh, much less likely here than it was out there. But in terms of the other thing that I mentioned, which is river bottom, a lot of the river bottoms out there, there's, you know, if you look at it in kind of a grand scale, it's a pretty narrow area of cover that is surrounded by crops. And of course, if those crops are, you know, tall corn, 
then that makes a big difference in terms of adding to that available cover, which I think can make some of those spots just absolute dynamite in terms of pinch points once the crops come off and you just have that river bottom timber. But even this time of the year, I think there still could be plenty of deer bedding and living in those types of areas. So on some of the spots that I have kind of checked on the list to, to go and hit and spot check, it's basically like come in and look at the ag that is adjacent to some of those areas that have good oxbows and good cover and, and good brush in some of those river bottom type areas where I presume deer would bed if they are going to be bedding there. I'll go in and check, see if there's tracks. If I decide, okay, this looks like it's worth hunting, then basically what the overall strategy is for that type of a setup is to make the assumption of where the deer are bedding. And most of these, it's like an oxbow that has like a mixture of brush and maybe some timber and look at where the nearest inside corner is of those trees. So it's basically like the, the opposite of the oxbow, right? The, you get that point of the oxbow where the deer are bedding, and then that river loops back around and gives you an outer bend with that hard cut bank and kind of acts as a pinch point there. And then somewhere beyond that, there's going to be the food. So if I can see that type of a scenario where there's a good pinch point between where I would presume those deer are going to be bedding and where they're going to be feeding, then I would basically walk in, get tight to that pinch point as close as I think I can get to the bedding. Again, looking at the sign all the way on the way in. And if I think I can get a good setup there, then just pick a tree to set up somewhere around that pinch point. If it's an area two where that pinch point also happens to be kind of the only cover, and then maybe there's like another crop field or just kind of open pasture or something like that, then even better. The more I can choke down that deer movement and again, be within, you know, a hundred yards or 200 yards of where I expect the bedding areas to be, then that's kind of how I would set up on that particular type of location. And then big woods, I didn't, you know, touch on too much other than to say that, you know, it could be done. There might be scenarios, uh, where you can have good success there, but the, the challenge with big woods kind of like with the same challenge in that hill country, you know, maybe the wind and the thermals aren't going to be as big of a concern, but again, the food sources and the bedding, you know, could be spread out a lot more. It's a lot harder to pinpoint. So again, in the big woods type areas, I would generally feel more confident hunting those in the gun season, hunting those during the rut than either early season or late season when it's just a bed to food type of a pattern. Even in late season, I've tried scouting, you know, big woods before and following tracks and things like that. And it seems like oftentimes when you find those tracks and you, you follow them and you see what the deer are feeding on, and then you go back and look at the, the tracks that you followed on, on Onyx after the, after the fact, it's like, sometimes it seems like there's no rhyme or reason. Like they're just being nomadic and just feeding on whatever happens to be available. Um, and I don't know how much of that is also true during the early season. They obviously have a ton of, uh, you know, things like natural browse grasses and things like that, that are still growing in that early season and combine that with the usual large number of oak trees that are dropping acorns. There's just food all over the place. So I would imagine that if you can find a food source that's hot, then it could be really good, but it's, it's not as high probability in my opinion as some of those other areas where you can get the really isolated bedding and the really isolated food. And lastly, let's talk about locating deer. If I look at my, you know, kind of hunting strategy and, and things that I've done and haven't done over the last several years, and I compare them against guys that, you know, consistently are, are getting it done and maybe doing it in high pressure areas, um, or, you know, maybe they're just, you know, consistent big buck killers. What are they doing that I'm not and trying to do that analysis? 
generally the one thing that really stands out that I don't do a great job of, uh, but a, a lot of other people do is actually locating specific deer and then making a game plan based off of that. Whereas generally for me, it's been more of learning the land, learning how the deer use the land, and then just trying to, you know, essentially go into an area, hoping that there's, uh, you know, something that I might be looking for, and then just kind of hunting around until I either find it or I don't, and I start to transition to a different area overall. So that's something that when I look at myself, I know I need to do a better job of. I got a few more cameras out this year than I have in previous years. And in fact, you know, Sam and I are going out this weekend to place a couple of more uh, in Wisconsin, just so that we can get a better idea again, going into the season. And even if they're not still doing the same things that they might be doing on the opener later in September, at least we still have a ballpark idea of, Hey, these particular deer were in this general area in August, early September. And even if they're not here now, we know that they probably didn't move, you know, too terribly far in some of those smaller pockets. And they may absolutely have moved off of the public land and might only be coming back onto that public for brief opportunities or even after dark only. But there's also some of those bigger public land areas where even if they've shifted a little bit, there's a good likelihood that I might still be able to get on them. And if I, you know, conversely have trail cameras in areas where there's just not that much for, uh, you know, kind of overall, you know, mixture of, of older deer, then maybe those are areas I just don't really hunt that hard until potentially during the rut, say for example. So that's kind of the, the game plan for those specific areas. And the fact that I won't have a ton of opportunity to kind of drive around a glass because number one, I'm kicking out videos, you know, almost every day I'm working on editing of some sort. Number two, we're going to be out of state in North Dakota, going to be focusing on that. So that's going to take away some glassing time. And number three, in a lot of these areas, the fields that are there either have corn, which obviously is good for glassing. There are generally all private. And number three, which the private land thing doesn't really matter that much unless it's, you know, shining it after dark and that type of thing where, you know, a lot of people get angry. It seems like if you uh, want to go shine their private fields, uh, I know that from experience of uh, growing up in Wisconsin, but, um, so I, I usually don't shine too much, but if I was, if I was really just trying to focus on one state, I would basically try and employ every single thing that is in my arsenal. I would look at glassing. I would look at shining if it's legal. I'd look at trail cameras and then try and build as much information as I can going into the season. So given that I can't necessarily do all three of those things and focusing mostly on trail cameras and then taking the trail camera data and then referencing that against the sign that I'm actually seeing when I go into the woods. But even that type of a strategy is more than I can do in certain other areas. Like in the areas that we hunt in Minnesota, it depends on the exact classification of the public land, but there's a lot of public lands in Minnesota that you cannot hang trail cameras on overnight. Uh, WMAs, you know, they kind of fall under the personal equipment category that you have to remove at the end of each day, you know, just like with tree stands and things like that. Some areas even, you know, go and specifically say you cannot leave game cameras overnight. And then there's other areas where you can't, it just depends on the exact classification. But for most of the areas that we've really been scouting, we've really been trying to learn trail cameras are not allowed. So that leaves what glassing that leaves. Uh, actually, I haven't done shining in Minnesota. So I couldn't even tell you if it's legal or not, but it's irrelevant because 
on all of the perimeter land surrounding some of these big swamps, there's really not much for private ag anyway that we would be able to glass, and there's not much for a private ag that we'd be able to shine anyway, even if it is or isn't legal. So what does that basically leave me with? Well, it leaves me with the only thing I can do is either very specifically glass, meaning I go out into the swamp itself, pick an area that I want to observe, and then find some type of other area, maybe, you know, a couple hundred yards away that hopefully I can climb a tree, still glass that area, look for movement, look for deer that might be bedding there and try and pick it in a spot where number one, my tree and my access is not in an area where I anticipate those deer moving. Uh, that's one option. And I think that probably makes sense and it's probably better than doing nothing. Uh, but the alternative is again, just trying to do the best that I can to really increase, increase my woodsmanship skills and learn to identify some of those key things that would tell me what kind of deer are in an area. And obviously track size is, you know, kind of the, the big key thing there, but there could also be other kind of minor things. Like if there's, uh, I can't remember what podcast I heard it on, but somebody was referencing, you know, looking at time marks, if there's an area with a high stem count, uh, little things like that. And of course, you know, you think of rubs and rub lines popping up around the rut, but there's also times obviously during September where you start to get deer that are, you know, rubbing the velvet off, they're opening up trees. And if you can get a, a rub that's super fresh, I mean, that could mean that it's hot right then and there. So really for that type of an area where I can't really glass, except for very specific scenarios, I can't really, you know, shine, can't do trail camera surveys. It's just going to be me doing the best job that I can of trying to, you know, keep refining the, the woodsmanship skills, learning as much as I can and, and trying to, uh, you know, keep increasing the odds that way. And I definitely think it's lower odds than some of the other methods, but again, it's a little bit of, of give and take and just kind of, you know, it's either that, or I hunt some other area that I maybe don't like the terrain as much. I don't like the, you know, the land size or other things I don't like about the land as much. Maybe there's driving distance and I can run trail cameras or it's picking the stuff that I like the land for based on the merits of what I found postseason scouting, and then just trying to figure it out, uh, basically as we're in the woods. And that's kind of more of the strategy that I'm landing on this year. So I hope this podcast wasn't too boring. Hopefully, you know, you guys were able to learn, uh, something from my strategy. And again, I'm not claiming to be an expert on all this stuff. And if you find holes in my strategies, or there's things where you're like, you know, I tried doing that two years ago and here's what I actually found worked better. Keep those messages coming. I like reading the, the feedback that you guys have. Uh, I, you know, I try to be as, you know, responsible response. Oh boy. Try to be as responsive as I can. And, uh, you know, I appreciate the open dialogue. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.